Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's a brand new year. And what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Picó al área Martinelli, lo busca justamente Tomillazo brasileño. Toma, papá. Golazo. Gol. Arsenal. Gabriel Martinelli. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning to you too, Andrew. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Feeling quite goodly. Good win for Arsenal at the weekend. Pretty decent set of Premier League results over the weekend too. And uh, got a cup of tea. I just had an underwhelming ginger biscuit. But apart from that, everything... Is pretty okay. How about you? It's no orange Kit Kat, is it? No. It's no orange Kit Kat. You know the way, I think there's a thing where, you know the way there were biscuits, like your regular supermarket, McVitie's, whatever it is, the regular biscuits. Sure. Your Jacobs, your McVitie's. Then they started to get a bit like like beer, you know? There was beer, and then there was craft beer. Now there are craft biscuits, and Mm -hmm. I feel like some of these craft biscuits are... Ah, uh, they're 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 chancing their arm a bit, really. You know? Really, yeah, yeah. It's just too complicated. It it shouldn't be as complicated as they're making it. This was a ginger spice biscuit. I thought it would be just like a nice ginger snap or ginger nut, whatever you want to call them. But it was it was it was it was like um almost like a Farley's rusk. You know the things that kids eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I that. enjoyed those as a baby. Yeah. As a baby. Yeah, big fan of those, but as an adult, no. And actually, the ginger nut, ginger snap—I don't know if you have those in your part of the world, wherever you're listening. But I mean, they're pretty solid as they are. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't even need to tinker with that formula. Exactly, too much. it's it's the classic biscuit because it's a great biscuit on its own, and it's a super dunker. 
It's like it is a super dunk. It's very in, durable. In your cup of tea, dunk the ginger biscuit in, and it's brilliant. Or you can just you know snap them and eat them uh, dry if you like. There's you know there. It's a very pleasing thing, and they, this has just gone too far. But look, I feel like uh, we could be complaining or making something to complain about when there isn't really. Yeah, much. they're dairy free as well. Dairy. So maybe yeah. they're good for the planet. I don't know. I don't I'm always know. reading about how dairy farming's bad. Well, anyway. <laughs> Uh, how are you? Uh, yeah. Are we going to get some ginger biscuits out of this, do you think? I don't know. If Who makes them? McVitie's? McVitie's. I don't think they've given us anything free before. Uh. It's about time, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. I'm absolutely fine, thank you. I, yeah, feeling good. I mean, it's feeling quite sort of, uh, dare I say it, Christmassy here. I know it's just been Thanksgiving in the States, mm. it's not even December yet, but it's very crisp and cold and there's a dusting of snow around the country here and right. there. Yeah, we... The game was called off, wasn't it, yesterday? Quite retro thing to see. Uh, Burnley Spurs called off. Burnley don't have snowfall. under soil heating. I'd say Burnley actually have under soil freezers just to make mm. it an even more inhospitable place to yeah. go. Rather than melt the snow, they just cr- they push it up from underneath the earth. It is also about five hundred years ago in Burnley. It's like when you <laughs> enter the, the the walls of Burnley, you go through a kind of time warp uh, in technology terms. So there's very little they could do about the snow on the pitch. They got the ploughs out there on the field. The stout yeoman of Burnley could not yeah. clear the pitch in time. Yeah, that was that was quite something. I mean, how much of uh, yesterday's football did you watch? Um, I, I know there was a big game between Chelsea and Manchester United, but I chose instead to watch the, uh, the new Beatles documentary, having put myself sure. through West Ham versus Manchester City and, and found myself contemplating existence itself because it was just so dull in in the second half. Yeah, no, I didn't watch a great deal of it, I have to say. I think the nice thing about... So I, there are positives and negatives to an early Saturday kickoff. And on balance, I think I hate them. But the <laughs> nice thing about them is that if you win, you sort of don't have to worry about what happens in the rest of the Premier League weekend. Why do you hate them on balance? Because, well, there's a few reasons. Number one, I I just think for fans, it's not as good. Like, I I basically feel there's no real pre-match experience for a 12.30 kickoff. If you're a fan in the ground, I think it's all compressed and condensed. Just had your breakfast and then you're at the game all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, affects the atmosphere uh, within the stadium. Mm-hmm. I think it takes a little bit of time to get warmed up, which may be at 3pm and two pints or three pints on from that. You know, it's not quite the same. Uh, I, I also feel like we tend to not play particularly well in them. And I actually, I'm not convinced we're alone in that. I, I do sometimes feel like those early games they take a bit of time to get going too I don't know if it's a psychological Mm. thing or a physiological thing Um, so yeah I'm not enamoured with them and we've got quite a lot of them coming up actually and oh I'm annoyed personally about the fact that we're playing (laughs) early on New Year's Day (gasps) that is going to be absolutely shit isn't it New Year's Day 1230 12.30 against Man City (sighs) I think we should just all agree we're not going to that do you know what I mean? We're not going. <laughs> we're not watching it. We're not getting out of bed. Yeah. None of it. And, yeah. and to be honest, 
I think Arteta and the players should do the same. Isn't it like a three 0 loss if you if Just you don't, don't turn, turn up? up. Yeah, that's but, fine. That's fine with me. But I think you can also get fined and maybe banned some. But didn't that happen to Middlesbrough? We'll all they... chip in, Andrew. We'll all chip in but for they, a nice, they, relaxed New Year's Day. They, we'll all chip in. Yeah, but we could be duck points as well. I think that happened oh. to Middlesbrough some years ago, didn't it? Where they were like, what, they, they were all hung over. They were all hung over on New Year's Day, and they said, "Fuck it, we're not going." Now I think they had like a, a dose of the, you know, the the green apple splatters or whatever going through the squad, and they couldn't, um, yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't put a team together, so they didn't, and then I think they ended up getting relegated because of it. They I did could that be misremembering. That's yeah. right. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, okay. Fine. Maybe we'll turn up, but then we've also got. Uh, on the Boxing Day bank holiday, Wolves twelve thirty. That's the twenty eighth, actually. Yeah, twenty eighth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, um, I've committed to go to the darts on the twenty seventh, and that is basically. I mean, I know nothing about darts. It's basically just drinking for several hours, um, and then I've got a gap and go to Wolves at twelve thirty. So I feel like the festive fixture list has been, you know, compiled to. Uh, annoy ruin my plans and annoy me. Okay, well, fair enough. You've you've made your position quite clear on this, but in spite of that, in spite of all the yeah. trials and tribulations that you personally had to go through uh, mm. on the day itself, uh, without anyone taking into account your needs, I didn't even get yeah. a call, Andrew. I didn't even get a call. <laughs> we did have a good day. Uh, on the pitch against Newcastle United and took three did, points. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose we should, uh, about seven minutes into the podcast, start talking about that because that's that's kind of why we're here. So I guess the, 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 the place to start is the starting lineup, as it usually is. And there were a couple of things I think that most people were thinking might happen, but actually didn't. So I was very much of the impression, or the impression, it's not like someone said to me, you know what? keep it under your hat but I think Kieran Tierney is going to start against it. it's not that mm. I just felt that Kieran Tierney would come back into the team and and we spoke about this on the podcast during the week that you know if Tierney had come back in for Nuno Tavares and if you know Ainsley Maitland-Niles had come in for Albert Sambi Lukonga after both of them had difficult moments during the game against Liverpool you know, personally, I don't think it would have been seen necessarily as a punishment. Like, you did this wrong, now you're being punished because somebody else is coming back in. I just felt like, you know, you could rationalize both those decisions. But Mikel Arteta stuck with Tavares, and he stuck with uh, Sambi in midfield. Uh, the only change was Martin Odegaard for Alexander Lacazette, which I think was uh, expected because of the way we thought Newcastle were going to play, the deep block, and, and this, what we might need to break that down. Um, were you surprised um, by those decisions? I mean, look, they paid off because I think both of them on the day were really, really good. Yeah, Sambi, I was less surprised um, just because I thought it was kind of a closer call, really. It could have been him or Maitland-Niles. Yeah, yeah. Tavares, I was pretty surprised, I have to be honest. And the reason I was surprised is that in my mind, I was working back from Old Trafford and I was thinking, well, after Anfield, maybe Tierney's going to play at Old Trafford. Mm. And if he's going to do that, it makes sense to give him some football before then. So I, I, in my head, I was thinking I'd probably play against Newcastle and then he'll um, might come off after 70 minutes or something yeah. like that. And in fact, even when he was named on the bench, I was thinking, right, well, 
because he was out there warming up in basically just a bib. He would have played in Burnley. No questions <laughs> asked. But um, I kept thinking, right, well, he'll come on. You know, he might even come on at half time or he'll come on at 60 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and of course he didn't. And so, yes, I was surprised. I was surprised Nuno played against Liverpool. I have to be honest and say I was surprised he played against Newcastle too. On reflection, and certainly with hindsight, it looks like very good management for Mikel Arteta because he gave both those players an opportunity to put the Liverpool game behind them. Mm. And I agree with you in terms of their performance. Um, they absolutely did. I thought both were very good on the day, particularly Nuno in the second half. I think the first half was <laughs> up and down. I mean, Arsenal had 20 shots or so on the day. And, and they I were all probably, him. <laughs> yeah, 90% were Nuno. But I, 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 I think that was about as clear an example as you can see, as you can see of someone having a word with the player at halftime. Mm. I really... I'm certain. I mean, it, it happened on the pitch at one point, I think, towards the end of the first half that one of the coaches, I think maybe it was, um, I want to say Carlos Cuella, but that's the centre-back who played for Aston Villa. What's his name? Carlos, uh, what's his name? Little Carlos Cuesta, that's it. Had a chat with um, Nuno during the first half. Um, and from then on, he was a little bit more a little bit more conservative in his decisions. Well, and I yeah. think it really helped. Yeah, look, I, I have to say that during that first half, which I found quite frustrating as a half of football, mm. um, at first I was a bit like, well, you know what? Fair play to Tavares. He's actually trying to do something. He's trying to make something happen. We were so... I think we were very predictable in that first half. I think if you've, if you've watched Mikel Arteta's teams over the last two years or whatever it might be, it was all very familiar. I think it was probably quite easy for for Newcastle. There was a lack of pace. I mean, the the free kick that we won uh, outside the Newcastle box that, that Odegaard took and the keeper made a yeah. good save, that came from one of the only moments where we injected a little bit of pace and intensity into our build-up um, mm. and the way that we were playing. So I was looking for a lot more of that. So when Nuno went on a run and had a shot, I was like, fair play. Like, someone's doing something. You know, someone's trying to make something happen rather than circulating the ball back again and doing the horseshoe and all that kind of stuff. And then after a while, I was a bit like, oh, there's a line here, isn't there? <laughs> between yeah. between trying to do something and, you know, actually, this is a bit silly now, which isn't to be critical of him. I think he had a, a really fine performance on the day. The raw ingredients of, of this player are really, really something, you know, if they can be honed and harnessed and, and um, all of that, you know, th there's just something about him that's really fun to watch. Um, but yeah, I, I think Arteta even referenced it uh, in his post-match interview on BT Sport afterwards. He said, I, you know, I don't know how many times we had a shot or I don't know what we were thinking with all the shooting or whatever it was. And I don't necessarily think it's shooting itself. It was the, you know, some of the, the wild efforts with his right foot that sort of whacked out for a throw. But beyond that, I thought, I thought he had a really impressive game, as did Sambi, who, you know, created probably the best chance of the first half uh, from open play, um, if we don't count the one for Smith Rose header, which led to the Aubameyang thing, but but it was a really lovely pass um, over the defence for Saka at the back post, which he just put wide. Yeah, that was a great crossfield pass, um, 
And I, I, I agree, he had a really good game, Sambi. I think uh, it was important for him to have this game. And and what's interesting is he's starting to show us a little bit more range mm. in his passing, which I think we knew was there. Certainly Anderlecht, if you watch any clips of him playing for them, he was producing those kinds of passes. But with more time on the ball in a less physical league, mm. uh, couple of months now into his adaptation I think we're starting to see a little bit more of that from him a bit more expression and that was a brilliant brilliant ball for Saka um, and that was a I guess yeah a, a decent enough chance but really I think it was only in the sort of last five ten minutes of the half that we started to up the ante yeah. maybe partly uh, sparked into life by Newcastle hitting the bar Um you know, uh, that might have put the frighteners up a little bit, but it did take some time for the game to get going. Mm. And actually on the sidelines, Arteta was sort of trying to animate the fans a bit. You know, as I, as I said, these early kickoffs, they can have that slight soporific feel early on. And I think it was sort of a bit of both from the playing side and from the stands as well. But mm. They got there in the I end. I mean, that, that, that's, I mean, you mentioned Newcastle hitting the bar. I think it was Aaron Ramsdale made a great save um, to touch it onto the bar. Yeah, from, yeah. This is the one from Shelby. And it just sort of shows you how precarious it can be um, when you're playing the way we're playing. I think there was, there is like, it's difficult, right? When you're playing against a team that is sitting deep, that is uh, in a uh, an organized defensive block, that can be really difficult. And I think mm. everybody would accept that, but there is a there's a line between sort of being patient and having control, and actually just being, uh, what's the word? I don't want to say timid because that's not really the words I want to use, but but maybe just not adventurous enough. And when Newcastle had their couple of moments, I think there was another Shelby shot not long after that, maybe from the resulting corner that Ramsdale saved. Again, you're like, okay. If they score, they're going to sit and make it even more difficult. If they've got a, a lead to hang on to, they're never going to come out and we're going to find it very, very difficult to break them down. And I don't even think that that is where Newcastle are particularly good. You know, I think if Newcastle have any strength at all, um, you know, sitting bottom of the table, it's some of the attacking players they have and some of the 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 threat that they can pose. So that's why yeah. I was frustrated by that first half. I was frustrated with how slow we were, how slowly we got the ball forward. You know, there's measured and then there's just predictable, which allows the opposition to get back in uh, and defend. I think Arteta referenced that afterwards. He said something along the lines of uh, our first phase with the centre-backs was too slow. So he wanted more urgency, wanted the ball to be moved quicker. And I think we saw that in, in the second half. Yeah. I, and, you know, Arteta's come out and said that himself. Just in the interest of balance, like I, I have to say, I wasn't especially worried in the first half. I, we dominated possession so much that, you know, with the exception of that Ramsdale save from that Shelby shot, I did have the sense of we will get there. Um, it's It is just a question of, time but maybe that wasn't a sense everybody shared I don't know yeah I wasn't particularly worried by Newcastle per se I was more mm. worried about what we were going to do and were right. we going to be able to step it up and could we inject that intensity could we inject moments of quality and, and what have you and I think towards the end of the half we certainly we saw a bit of that 
Um, Saka drifted out to the left-hand side. He created that chance for Smith-Rowe. The keeper made a very good save uh, from the header. That was a lovely piece of play and maybe a sign of what was to come. And then there was the miss from Aubameyang, which was um, very, very bad. Very bad miss. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those where I was at the other end of the pitch. So first time I saw it, I kind of thought maybe it's one of those. You know, sometimes the ball comes at you so quickly that it's just an instinctive... Mm kick out at it and there's nothing you can do about it having watched it back I don't think that is quite what happens I think that he sees the defender on the line um, and sort of tries to avoid him so Mm. sort of tries to play it inside that near post Um, it's a massive miss Um, I, I do think though that he does do that like I, you know, if you, I think of, I can think of many times Aubameyang has missed seemingly mm. easier chances than ones he's scored, um, and, and I've read a lot about the miss and people sort of concern over it. It doesn't massively concern me because I kind of think he's always been a guy who will will do that. Yeah, I agree, and we have seen some misses um, in his time here, and I think there is a a point to be made that. This sort of chance is seen as his bread and butter, right? That's the, mm-hmm. in inverted commas, the defense of Aubameyang is that like he needs service in the box. Yeah. Th- that's where he plays. That's where he's most effective. He's a penalty box player, always has been, always will be at this point. This is what you need to do to get him um, on the score sheet is, is make sure the ball gets to him inside the box. Uh-huh. Right, so that's one of the defenses. So a miss like that feels especially egregious when that is considered his his strength, right? Yeah. But I think there's also a counterpoint where there is a, a question of volume of chances. You know what I mean? So yeah. it feels egregious because of that, but it also feels egregious because we don't get him many chances. We no. haven't really been getting him many chances. And look, the goals have been coming from elsewhere, and that is good. And there is a probably a big debate to be had uh, about the striking position and the future of it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we, we do have some questions about that for, for part two. But I'm not trying to excuse him because I think he should score that. Absolutely, a player of his quality should score that. But if it is the only chance that he gets in a game, then it feels especially... Um, uh, worse. That's terrible. Uh, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying, though, when it yeah, comes Yeah, yeah, of to- course, of course. I, I think that I do understand that. And I and I understand certainly the debate around his wider performances and, and the centre-forward position going in future. Um, I just, I guess I think the, the miss is a bit of a red herring because it feels kind of random, like whether he puts it in or not. Um that's not really, for me, the debate around Aubameyang. The debate is like, what does he contribute to the side? And I think on, on an afternoon like this, against a very deep defence, it's difficult for him. And I, and I don't think he's brilliant at that. And I think that's a bit of an issue for this team. Um, and I think it's maybe more of an issue than, than him kind of missing a sort of freak chance um hmm. but yeah I, I i don't think he had a great game basically but if he scores i guess everyone's going well he did his job yeah. you know he 
he he was in the right place at the right time. He scored. Yeah. I think it's true that we don't create enough chances. I think that the question is, the question is, is is there another type of centre forward that would help us create more chances for the team? And um, yeah, I think that's that that could be where we're going. You know, yeah, that could be where yeah. we're going, and maybe we'll we'll touch on that in part two. But let's focus on what was good, and the second half was good, and. You know, you mentioned Aubameyang didn't have a great game. I didn't think Partey had a great game. Um, not that he was bad per se, but I just I was expecting a bit more against no, a side like, Newca- uh, like Newcastle. I think Odegaard, as uh, I suppose he's in this weird uh, place where he's not really considered a youngster by many people, even though he is only 22. I think it's to do with obviously his time at Real Madrid and the high profile signing that he's made. But, you know, I, I thought he was okay on the day, but nothing much more than that. Um, mm. But where we were good and what was good, I think it's it's really interesting to look at where the goals came from and who was involved. So the first goal, it's Sambi, it's Tavares, it's Smith Rowe, it's Saka all down mm. that left-hand side. The combination play was lovely. Um, I could be misremembering, but I think it comes from... Does it come from a free kick where Smith Rowe is working really hard to win the ball and he gets a kind of shove in the face and we we take it quickly and, and make the move from there? The movement from Saka, the awareness from Tavares, the finish. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful football. And... Um, you know, to see Saka get on the score sheet after a while without a Premier League goal was very pleasing. Yeah, and a really uh, emphatic finish as well from yeah. Saka. I mean, really interesting goal. That spell of Arsenal possession as well, by the way, comes from a good bit of defensive play from Nuno Tavares, who won the ball on the halfway line, used his strength to kind of muscle a guy out of it and help keep possession. And Saka being a bit freer in his movement did look like the crucial element here. I mean, we spoke about the Aubameyang miss, but in the build-up to that, it was Saka, as you said, drifting mm. out to the left-hand side. Generally, when Saka and Smith-Rowe get close together, good things happen. And one of the issues with our starting lineup is that, you know, we put them on opposite flanks and, and that's fine, but I do think it's good to grant them that flexibility to kind of... Um, feel the game a little bit and sense the space. And Saka, the way he moves out to that left wing on this goal, it's really interesting. He just sort of casually jogs across to that side and you can see him basically not be tracked and the overload created. Um, I also think positionally, it's a really interesting bit of play from Nuno Tavares. Mm. I mean, when we're talking about our fullbacks, you know, does Kieran Tierney adopt that kind of central position? Is he as comfortable in that kind of central area? I'm not sure. I certainly don't think he could turn and spin and play a through ball like that off his right foot. <laughs> and that's not to say Tavares is a better player, but just stylistically there it's, is a distinction. It's very it's very interesting because in the build-up to it, uh, I, I'm just watching it again here, there's a moment when Tavares picks up the ball and he's basically central just outside the D. He's yeah. playing in the position of, I guess, what you consider a number 10 or an attacking midfield player or a central midfield player. So I think that's an interesting point when you talk about where would Tierney be. I think Tierney would probably be much more traditionally on the left-hand side 
Um, mm. So it's an I interesting so. aspect, yeah. And yeah, and it really is an excellent finish from Saka. I kind of think it's a bit overlooked what a good finish that is. I mean, he strikes it so well low mm. into that far corner. Um, uh, a little bit reminiscent of kind of, you know, Mark Overmars going through on goal, the way he finished that off. Yeah, just the, the pace of it. Absolutely. Yeah. The keeper's got no chance. Yeah, and yeah, it was a great moment. And I have to say, I think Saka did look the most likely. I mean, he created that chance for Smith Rowe. At the start of the second half, he had that one where he went between two defenders and the finish wasn't quite as good. Then there was moments before the goal, I think he played across from the left-hand side. Are you all right? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I just accidentally turned up the volume uh, on the, <laughs> the, the the playback to about 200%. And oh, wow. I thought you'd fallen off your chair. Um, uh, yeah, do you remember there was like a cross from the left that sort of went all the way across yes. the six-yard box? Yes. So he really was looking to make things happen. And yeah, he, he delivered in a big way yeah, yeah, yeah. with the goal. Very, it's a shame sorry, that he didn't on. stay on the pitch. Yeah. I think he was flying, to be honest. Very smart movement as well to make sure he stayed onside. You know, when you look at the run that he makes uh, to take the Tavares pass, uh, he, he mm. does really well to, to see the line and stay onside to make sure he can get into that position. You're right. Yeah, it's a shame he was injured. I, what did you make of that situation? Because he went down, got back up again, went down again, got back up again. And then I think there was something about us not wanting to kick the ball out of play because yeah. everyone could see he was injured. But we didn't put the ball out of play because I wonder were we not worried. But remember what happened against, um, was it Watford? It was Watford, wasn't it? Where, you know, they put the ball out of play and we just took it back and carried on. Um, so I wonder, was that an, an aspect of that? Because Saka was down and clearly struggling, but we carried on and kept playing. So there must be some uh, instruction about what to do in those circumstances. Yeah, I actually saw this moment really clearly because I was sort of behind that goal and Saka, I think he went through and maybe t- tried to take a shot. He made a run into the penalty box anyway, just to the right-hand side of the penalty spot. He immediately stopped and he put his hand to his hip, essentially. Mm. Um And I don't know if it was his groin or something like that, but he he clearly felt something. And I immediately, he signaled to the bench straight away. And I was like, his game is done. Um, I was surprised that he was allowed to come back on. And and when he did come back on, I mean, there was one moment where he got the ball and the whole crowd were like, don't (laughs) Don't give him the ball. ball. (laughs) Yeah, he he can't really move. Um, So we haven't heard a great deal about that. And Mm. I hope it's nothing untoward. Hopefully it was just kind of precautionary. But he he very clearly felt his groin, his hip, uh, and kind of knew he was Mm. done. So that would suggest something muscular's happened. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, He had to be replaced. And there were options for Mikel Arteta. There was Nicolas Pepe, who is, you know, like for like, basically. Left-footed attacker. And he was warming up, I think, at the time. He was yeah. one of the three out doing the rotational warming up. So that's what I assumed. Yeah. I mean, mind he, holding my hands up and saying, I, 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 Arteta foxed me. I thought he'd play Tierney. I thought Pepe would come on. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, he could have shuffled things around as well and put Lacazette on as well if he'd wanted yeah, to. true. So when they said on the TV, Martinelli is coming on, I was like, ooh. That's a surprise. I was just, who's that? Uh, It was a bit of a surprise, but what an impact. 
what an impact he made. And if we're going to talk about the combination of of fresh Arsenal squad ingredients down the left-hand side for the first goal. we got to do it again for the second goal because it was Ben White to Tommy Yasu, uh, over the top to Martinelli, and that is just a lovely finish, isn't it? And not only is it lovely and controlled and deliberate, I think it's brave as well because he's got to keep his eye on the ball and he must know that, like, a goalkeeper is coming. There'd be goalkeepers who would come and take man and ball. So I, I thought it was a really brave finish on top of just being a high quality finish to to put us 2-0 up. Yeah, it's very aesthetically pleasing as well. The way mm. it just clears the goalkeeper. I think it's been a bit overlooked. I've not seen enough people sort of in the wider football world talking about what a brilliant finish that is. I mean, it's I think it's sensational skill to take a ball that's sort of coming over your shoulder in that fashion. Um shows real confidence and real you know that's been the hallmark of Martinelli that he's always scored different types of goal um, and that's another one uh, mm. and I, I, yeah, amazing impact it was an interesting sort of few moments before the goal because Martinelli came on then Newcastle had their penalty appeal mm. which I do think once or twice in the game there were some signs that we looked a little bit vulnerable to like one direct pass uh, and this was one instance where that happened. I yeah. didn't think it was a penalty. I thought, I thought to be honest, Callum Wilson just went to ground very softly and way earlier than yeah, he needed to. I agree. Um, I think if he stays on his feet, probably another second, he might get fouled, <laughs> but he went down early. But then there was a kind of interesting sort of lull in the game where I think Arsenal were expecting a VAR review or something. Like we were just mm. kind of knocking it around very, very tentatively at the back. Um, then we progressed up the right and Martinelli to give him credit. When Tommy Asu gets that ball, he points yep. into the channel and Tommy Asu, it's, that's not an easy pass to wait perfectly into uh, Martinelli. He I th- does well that. I think Martinelli makes it look a better pass than it is. Maybe, maybe, maybe but I think you're right. Um, you know, Tommy Asu hasn't got a huge amount of credit for for his no. uh, for his pass, which I think is excellent. Martinelli makes the most of it, absolutely. But it's still the kind of pass that Martinelli was looking for. He played it and produced the finish. Um, and like, great to see him come on and have an impact because he hasn't played a great deal this season. And when he has played, it hasn't been anywhere near as well as we would like. And and we've had this conversation. We've had loads of questions on the podcast. You know, does Mikel Arteta hate Gabriel Martinelli, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I think it could be easy to jump to that kind of conclusion. Hate obviously is too strong a word. You know what I mean? But everything he's ever said about him has been positive. And I, I get the sense that maybe there's... <sighs> they're sort of holding him back a little bit on purpose, mm. if that makes mm. sense. Um, I mean, there are there are games where, you know, when you're winning, it's much harder to get a guy like that into the team. I think you could give him more minutes in games which are, which are secured, but we're not always or not often enough in that kind of a position, are we, where, where the result is pretty much assured so you can throw on a guy with, with 20 minutes to go or what have you. But it was great to see him make that impact and a reminder of, of what he can do. And, you know, for a team 
as we've often said, doesn't really score enough goals to sort of have the the goal out of nothing guy, which is kind of what he is. Um, I think that's that's a positive development. And, and what did you make of him coming on ahead of Pepe? Did you think that was significant? I mean, why do you think yeah. Arteta went for Martinelli this time? Why? I, I don't. I don't know. Genuinely, mm. I don't know. I, I expected to see Pepe. I don't know if something has happened with Pepe because he's barely played now in the last five or six matches. You know, yeah. we haven't seen him. Um, I think Tim said something on the Arscast on Friday, maybe it was Tim, that you, what you can tell about what a manager thinks of a player isn't by what he says, it's by whether he picks him or not or, or how often he picks him. You know what I mean? Team selections mm-hmm. tell you more about what a manager thinks of players than anything else. Mm-hmm. And it seems like at this moment in time, Pepe is very much on the fringes of Mikel Arteta's thoughts. It does seem that way. I mean, I was just looking back. He, he started the league game against Crystal Palace. Since then, he's played five minutes in the Premier League at the end of the Leicester game, mm. um, which does tell its own story. I, I, I also think with January coming up, we've all talked about that being an important period for Martinelli. But you can't just throw him straight into that without any minutes, you know, yeah, expect yeah. him to be at his best. I think you have to integrate him, begin integrating him in the first team a little earlier than that. And I wonder if this was a game where maybe they'd earmarked some minutes for Martinelli, maybe even mm. thinking we might be a couple of goals up, we might be in a comfortable position, as you say. And then the, the injury happens and they think, well, this is his chance. And in fairness to him, I thought he did really well Um He's not played off the right that many times. No, that's why it was a surprise as well, wasn't it, that he was picked there, yeah. I thought they might even switch him out to the left and put Smith-Rowe on the right or change things around in Mm. some way. But I thought he did well. And, and, you know, as the game progressed and Newcastle had to become a little bit more adventurous, he he offered a constant threat on the break. So I thought this was, a you know, obviously a fantastic moment with the goal, but I thought a very good cameo all around. And And I think he should have had a penalty, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I've, I, I don't know if I do think that. I mean, do you not? He gets absolutely smashed. Yeah, by, he gets uh, smashed cells. in the face by a guy's mm. shoulder. I think in that kind of a scenario, if it's a defender and an attacker, and the defender, like Lascelles, is a big guy, if he uses his strength, if it's shoulder to shoulder, I think you give it to the defender every single time. Because it's it's just using your physicality to to defend well. In this circumstance, he didn't go shoulder to shoulder. He went shoulder to head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a foul. And I think it could and probably should be, even though it's accidental, a red card. Because that is potentially very, very dangerous play. I don't really see what's different about that than slightly mistiming a tackle and going studs up into somebody's ankle. Like you're trying to get the ball, right? Trying to get the ball, you miss it, you hit the guy, replay show, there's the studs, off you go. Like Aubameyang against uh, Crystal Palace uh, last season. Was it last season or the season before? I can't remember. But like it was one of those where he was making a genuine attempt to play the ball, missed it, stood on the guy's ankle, replay show, that's bad off you go. Similar to this, 
if you're trying to be physically dominant and you do it in a fair way, no problem. But if your timing is off and you end up doing what Lascelles did to Martinelli, which is hit him full force in the side of the head with his shoulder, I, I football has a blind spot about this kind of injury or this, these kinds of incidents. Head injuries, they just don't really treat it the way that they should. I mean, people were pointing out to me on Twitter at the weekend that in rugby, that is a red card without even a moment's hesitation. Someone even mm. said, in ice hockey, that's a, a sending off or a sin bin or whatever it might be. And this is a game where they literally beat the shit out of each other for a sport. Um, you know, so it's never been properly addressed, that kind of incident. So I know why it wasn't given as a penalty. And I know why it wasn't seen uh, for many people as anything other than, well, that's just a bit of an accidental collision. But I think we need to rethink when it comes to moments like that, because it's not any different from smashing a guy's ankle or his leg or his knee because you were just seconds or half a second late for the ball. From from, That's what I think anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people will probably agree with that. I guess I just think... I guess I just think if I flip the situation and it's my centre-half, I, I kind of feel like he's not in control of where Martinelli's head is. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like his... It's not like LaSalle's shoulder is in an unnatural position. Mm. He, it's at shoulder height. The fact that Martinelli's head is there when he moves his shoulder is kind of not his fault, in my opinion. Like, if my central defender did that, I think I'd go... That strong defending. Mm, I disagree uh, on that, but you know, I, I think, I think there's a duty of care that you have if you're gonna. I mean, he went in hard with his shoulder because he was going to go shoulder to shoulder with Martinelli because he mm. knew he's bigger, he's stronger, he can just bundle him off the ball and deal with that situation. Um, and I know that he can't obviously control where Martinelli's head is, but he can control where he puts his shoulder and how hard he puts it there. But isn't that just risk? Like, yeah, but what's, just... The, what's the difference between that and a mistimed tackle, though? You know, at the end of the day, you are responsible for what you do to an opponent or don't do to an opponent. Um, and what I'm saying is that that in any other aspect of the game, if you go up swinging your elbow, you, maybe you don't mean to do it, but, you know, you can you can catch a guy. Uh, I suppose, yeah, but the difference is swinging an elbow is different to having a shoulder. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, but, but yeah. Uh, like, I agree with you about head injuries in football. And for me, like, the problem is once a head injury happens, then, like, like by what you're saying, if a ball's up in the air and two players challenge for it and one heads the other, should that be a red card? No, but what I'm saying is you can see LaSalle's come over and he's very deliberately going to um, shoulder Martinelli out of the way in a shoulder-to-shoulder mm -hmm. -shoulder challenge. And if, I'm saying if he makes it shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, I'm watching it again, boom, like he really leans into it. So it's not like Martinelli ran into LaSalle's shoulder. LaSalle's 
really dipped his shoulder a bit to 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 provide that kind of shoulder to shoulder power. You know what I mean? It was a deliberate act to shoulder Martinelli out of the way. He didn't get him in the shoulder. He got him in the side of the head. So for me, I, I really don't see why that um, goes unpunished. I just don't see. Like, if it's a case that Martinelli, uh, the defender's there, Martinelli, you know, the, as can happen, like a player can turn into a, an opponent and sort of hit their head off a shoulder or whatever it is. We've mm. seen that happen. I think that's accidental. There's nothing you can do as a defender. But if, you're, if your objective as a defender is to literally use your gigantic shoulder to muscle somebody out of the way, you can't use their head to do it. Mm. So... So there you go. But look, well, no, I, I, yeah, exactly. It's, I think where I agree is that football doesn't take concussion seriously enough. And, you know, should Martinelli have even stayed on the pitch? All these questions. Like, I think that's, for me, once it's happened, there's a lot of questions about how football deals with that situation. My taste is sort of more towards contact. Like, I, I, I think it is a contact sport and there is going to be accidental contact at times and we can't police all of that. Mm. Uh, I think we shouldn't. I think we should Listen, I love the physical aspect of football. I love good tackles. I love strength. I love power. I, you know, I, I absolutely do. But I think it has to be fair. Like if it's a fair challenge, like if he had gone shoulder to shoulder with Martinelli, end of story. Nobody's talking about it. Um, but, but 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 if Martinelli's six foot three, then it's fine what Lascelles does. And then I sort of feel like, are we punishing Lascelles for his power? No, you know you're, I mean? you're punishing Lascelles for um, for not. What are you punishing him for? How do I say this? It's not the attempt. Um, to to use his power, it's how he uses it. Like if he, uh, it's mistimed for me. It's a mistimed attempt to shoulder him. He doesn't shoulder him in the shoulder. He shoulders him in the head. But can he? Like, can he? Yeah. If he, if, he, if Martinelli's sick, like however much shorter he is, how can he do that? I don't know. I'm sure he can uh, if he wants. Yeah, I mean, listen, I completely see your point and I think most people probably will agree with you. I just think that, uh, yeah, I just think if that's Gabrielle in that position, I'm not wanting him sent off for that, personally. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at it again here, again, again, that, that replay from behind. Like, he's his timing is off. That's what's wrong with Lascelles. His timing is off. He just gets slightly ahead of Martinelli. And instead of shoulder to shoulder, he goes shoulder to head. Um, and unfortunately, that can cause serious injury in football. Yeah, yeah. I don't doubt that. Um, I don't doubt that. And I, I, I maintain that if it were any other kind of challenge, that's a red card. Like if that's, a, you know, a wild swipe at the ball and you miss... You go over the ball, you go studs up, whatever it might be. It's a red card. I just, I personally don't see how this should be any different. And that's not to try and make football a non-contact sport or anything like that. But anyway, look, uh, yeah, go and on. And I just think a diving tackle is just a lot, to me, is a lot more active than what Lascelles does. But 
in slow motion, it's not going to look like that. And people will have different views. Sure, sure. As we do, which is fine. Um, In conclusion, then, maybe not quite as convincing a win as people might have wanted in terms of a scoreline or what have you, but... I think there were a lot of positives from this game. I think another clean sheet is really good. There there are things that are developing within the team which are very promising. You know, Ben White and Gabrielle, we haven't really mentioned them, uh, but I thought they were very good again. Yeah. Um, Tommy Asu again, Tavares, we, we've mentioned Sambi. You know, the, the kids, the youngsters were the, the real um, stars of the show. And I think as well, if you're looking for other things, decisions like bringing on Martinelli ahead of Pepe and sticking with Tavares, et cetera, et cetera, maybe just show that the manager is is not changing, you know, but, but there are certain things that he has been criticized for or people haven't really appreciated. And, you know, we're seeing a little bit different from him as well because there were some safe options and he has been known to take the safe options in the past and he didn't so to do that to come away with the three points particularly important when West Ham dropped points Manchester United dropped points Mm -hmm. you know we really had an opportunity to to sort of consolidate our position in the table which we've done so all in all a very pleasing day yeah, and I think on the Arteta point, I mean, it really does continue a trend that started back with the Norwich game, you know, in terms of throwing Tommy Asu and Ramsdale and Gabriel and White mm. into that team. Lekonga and Maitland-Niles um, played in central midfield that day. That was the first game after the international break where we had three defeats and three games, no goals scored. And he was quite radical and quite progressive in terms of the 11 he selected. And he has continued with that. And there's been quite a clear demarcation of... You know, I, I want to give these young guys opportunities and I want to embrace that side of it. Mm. So that's encouraging. I think it's good that we got out of this game with a clean sheet as well. I think you can't underestimate the value of that to the defenders. And I think it reflects some good work they did in this game. I agree. I thought mm. White was really good. Gabriel, pretty good too. Tommy Asu, uh, excellent. I think, you mm. know, particularly in the second half of going forward, showed more than we thought. He's so. <sighs> Like, he obviously made a contribution going forward. But yeah. I think as a as a defender, is he the most um, aware, defensively aware defender? Like, it's the first part of his job, and he knows mm. that. And I think there was one incident in the second half in particular where he got back and made an, a really brilliant tackle in our box. Um, and remember, this is not a traditional right back either. This is, you know, he's a big guy. He's whatever he is, six foot one, six foot two. He's going up and down that right hand side. But when it comes time to be there and do his job defensively, he's always there. It's, it's. I, I really enjoy watching him as a defender. Yeah, and something I was told about him just when he initially joined is that it's interesting to watch how low he gets. Like for a big man, mm. <laughs> he travels with people and he kind of crouches when he defenders, defends against them. And it just makes him a really difficult obstacle to get around. Mm. I think in the build-up to the free kick, which Odegaard takes, which is saved in the first half, he makes a really fantastic yep. tackle yep. to regain possession um, kind of in their half of the pitch. I also like that he... He's quite pragmatic. He can be a bit cynical at times. If someone's getting away from him and he knows it, mm. he won't be afraid to pull them back. Um, 
Speaking of pulling back, did you think Newcastle had a shout for Odegaard pulling in the penalty box? Did you see that one? I did. I mean, I think that was more of a penalty than the the Wilson one, the Callum Wilson one, which I I didn't think was a penalty. It's just that there's so much of that goes on in the penalty box. At every corner. Those at the moment, if they're not spotted, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was probably a bit clumsy from Odegaard. I would prefer he didn't do that. Like you can stay with your man. You can. You can make life difficult for your man in the penalty box without risking that, to be mm. honest. I think I don't think it was a great piece of defending. And some will say it's six, six of one, half a dozen of the other because everyone's doing it. But at some point, you know, yeah, I, I think those could easily be penalties. It's just that there would be about 15 penalties a game if they start giving them. Yeah, I know it sounds absurd to debate the sales thing. Is that a penalty? And then say, oh, I could have had one for that. But in the laws of the game as they stand, mm. we were a little bit lucky there, yeah. uh, I think, to get away with that. But nevertheless, I thought this was a pretty good performance. I think that you have to remember what it's coming off the back of as well. Quite a, a humbling defeat, should mm. we say, at Anfield. And I thought the players... You know, they applied themselves pretty well. There were things wrong with the first half, but they dealt with it in the second. A lot of them responded individually to what happened at Anfield. And I think yet again, you're looking at the young group of players we have, without wishing to be too repetitious, but people like Saka, Smith-Rowe, Martinelli, Tavares, Laconga, they were the ones who stepped Mm. up and they were the ones who made the difference. And so a lot to be encouraged about there. We've consolidated our league position I think I'm right in saying that kind of whatever happens in midweek will stay in fifth, which uh, is comforting, but a big, big game on the horizon. On there is, night. there is. Um, and obviously we'll talk a bit more about that later in the week and we'll we'll preview it in the usual place. Um, right, look, we better take a break um, unless there's anything more from that game you want to talk about, but I think we've no, covered pretty No, I just everything. wanted to give a shout out to Neil Mope missing an open goal for Brighton just because um, I hate him and okay. I enjoyed it. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's listening as well. He's sitting here going, Yeah, great it really, discussion. honestly. Great discussion of that. Ah, oh, they really had to stick the knife in. He was out of the uh, Aubameyang scrapbook. Um, (laughs) I mean, a surreal scene at Brighton of their manager and team getting booed off. I don't know if you saw that. Um, Yeah, yeah. They they haven't won in a few games, but they're. I think they were eighth at the point that they that game finished and greeted by boos. And I actually went onto the Brighton Twitter account and looked at sort of the replies to, you know, some of their official tweets. And right. Yeah, there's... Obviously, there are some Brighton fans who are like, that was crazy and unnecessary, but there are lots who are like, I just feel like we can be doing so much better than eighth. And you sort of go, wow, football fans are interesting, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you start to set standards and raise expectations, and that's what happens. So... Yeah, yeah. It's the same... Um, Potter out. We'll be reading Potter out tweets on here next week. Yeah, all right. Let's take a break then. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Hey. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a gold t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you're an Arsblog member on Patreon. Just on that, um, if you visited the site today or over the weekend, Arsblog.com, or you visited Arsblog News recently, you'll have noticed that we've changed things up a bit there, spruced up the design, made it easier and better for you to read everything. And on Arsblog, uh, we've gone completely and utterly 100% ad-free um, mm. to make the reading experience and the design and everything else as good as it can be for all of you guys out there. So if you do uh, feel like you can support us on Patreon, because there is obviously a, a revenue um, impact there, but um, we feel like it's the best thing to do. If you feel like supporting us on Patreon, that would be hugely appreciated because it goes to do uh, everything that we do on the site and improve um, all aspects of it, um, including the stuff, of course, that you get on Patreon as well. So patreon.com forward slash arsebug. It's a fiver a month, basically, which is like that's a price of a pint. How much is a pint now in London? It's been At the Emirates Stadium, I think it's yeah. about £35. Right. Um, wow. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, you, a fiver easily in London for a pint. Well, there you go. So it's like a quarter of a pint a week if you feel like Arsblog gives you good value for money in that sense, uh, you could sign up at Patreon. So we'd really appreciate it. And thank you. 
The site looks so fresh does so clean. does. It's it's a new, new mobile theme and everything, so it looks really cool on mobiles and, and all the rest. So, yeah, we're very, very pleased with it, and uh, we'll you know, keep doing uh, the stuff that we're doing on the site. So there you go. Right. Oh, and I'm uh, yeah. just on other site news. I'm uh, representing Askblog tonight oh, I, at the yeah. FSA Awards. That's tonight, yes. With you Andrew and your, your hot date, Andrew hot Allen, date, going Andrew. along. So lucky. To the FSA. Well, you are lucky because you get like a slap-up meal and drinks and you get to, you know, hang out with the with the royalty of the football world. Like, I met Robbie Savage there one time when I was at well, the Well, and I've got the man with the most beautiful hair in and the beard. Arsenal world. And really, beard. And beard, exactly, yeah. doubling up. So, on my arm, no less. So, yeah, <laughs> fingers crossed we're looking to retain... Best Fan Media. Best Fran Merida, exactly. Fingers crossed for later on, and I uh, hope you enjoy the night. Right, do you want to go first with the question, or will I? Or uh, I'll go first, Okay, that's all right. I thought this was really interesting, and someone had asked it before, and I hadn't got around to it, so let's do it now. So Wes M, who's at The Toshio on Twitter, says, We've all seen Sambi for a few games now, but I'm still having trouble getting a good read on him. What strengths would you say he brings to the team? And what player would you compare him to, past or present? I'm less interested in the comparison element, but I do think it's interesting. He's one of those players, it's not easy to describe him, I would say. That's true. I think our sample size is still pretty small, you know? Um, Yeah. Like, he's not a physically dominant player but he's very athletic quick can get around well, Vincent company compared him to Yaya Toure did you see that I did clip? see that yeah um and and clearly there are I don't know what the stylistic issues um or similarities are you know physically Yaya Toure is a a, a much different kind of a guy but I wonder is he talking about maybe the vision perhaps yeah potential goal scorer I'm not sure he's had a few shots in his time hasn't quite um, got there yet but he's not afraid to take a shot from outside the area yeah Um, I mean maybe we're just beginning to see a player who's settling in and feeling comfortable the pass for Saka was superb and when you look back on the game from a statistical perspective I think he had something like six key passes Mm. which is what you would expect from a playmaker, a creator, mm. you know? So to do it from that central area is very, very promising. Um, I mean, I don't quite know how to answer that question because I need to see more of him, but he looks very tidy on the ball as well. He's not afraid to pick up the ball um, with his back to play, his back to midfield off his defenders. He's available. Um I, I I like the look of him so far. I really do. I think there's there's real potential there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes with central midfielders, it is difficult because they tend to be all-rounders. Mm. I remember having this de- debate about Matteo Guendouzi, you know, like, what does he do well? And it's like, well, he kind of, he kind of does a bit of everything. And uh, I think Lukonga is similar. But, but what I have seen from the bits I've seen from Belgium and what I've seen of him at Arsenal, I think he's got very good close control. I think his first touch is good. Mm. I think it enables him to escape pressure well. And then I think he's got a really, really strong 
range of passing, real depth and variety of passes. And I don't think we're scratching the surface, to be honest, of that yet. I think mm. I think what we saw for Saka, I think he's got that kind of thing in his locker. And I think he's also got shorter passes, through balls. I remember even in the Brentford game, his first Premier League game, there were a couple of like chi- almost chipped through balls towards Balogun from the edge of the box. Yeah. I think he's got those uh, if he gets his little wedge out. I think, yeah, I think he... Um, I think he's a really interesting player. I think it's... And the Yaya Toure comparison, I, what I infer from that, I I don't think... The company was saying, you know, he, he, he called Mikel up and said, you've got to look at this kid. He's the new Yaya Toure. I don't think he meant necessarily, actually, the Toure that we saw at Manchester City, the one that was kind of barreling past five people and scoring in the box. Mm. But the Toure that we saw prior to that at Barcelona was someone who really could control and dictate the tempo of a game playing in that deeper midfield role and I think Sambi has uh, the personality and the character to potentially do that I think that might be his direction you know that he might be a guy does a lot of good work on the halfway line rather than necessarily someone sort of getting into the final yeah and it was a good test of character for him as well wasn't it because um, definitely you know he he did have a difficult, uh, like I can't uh, imagine that they were looking to make a change seven or eight minutes into the second half uh, at Liverpool. But his performance and, and the way he kind of went off the rails in those opening stages of the second half made it necessary. So it was a good test of character for him. You know, he was given a show of faith by the manager. As you said, I think it's a it's a good piece of management. He He again, I don't think it's like throwing them to the wolves or or anything like that. Um, You know, footballers can understand and rationalize why changes to teams are made. And, you know, you're only as good as your last performance, et cetera, et cetera. But he came Mm -hmm. through it really well and showed real personality um, against Newcastle. And um, yeah, look, I think like all of these young players, there are going to be some fluctuations in their performance levels because it's the most difficult thing to do is, is... maintain a consistent level of performance when you're still developing mm-hmm. but we're seeing signs that you know the 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 ceiling if you like to use that phrase that people like to talk about um you know the ceiling is is quite high when it comes to what he can do um so now it's just about making sure he can um continue to develop and hopefully produce on a more consistent basis i i, I like what i've seen so far i really do yeah, really, really encouraging start, I think, mm. to life at Arsenal. Okay. Um, well, we sort of touched on that one. Um, Julius Oppenheimer uh, on the Discord says, what does it say about the pecking order that Martinelli came on ahead of Pepe? Or does it just come down to specific matchups? Personally, I think Pepe never makes that same diagonal run in behind to score the goal. And I think there were a number of questions, of, you know, basically... What now for for Pepe? Um, where do we go mm. from here? Where does where does he go from here? Because it seems clear um, that right now he's um, on the outs to an extent. And David Barnett uh, or David Barrett, sorry, on Twitter, uh, who's at Donegal Dave, uh, nineteen seventy six, says fairly obvious that Pepe will only play again if there's a raft of injuries. When do we decide to cash in and get whatever we can, uh, cut our losses, and look for an alternative? I don't. I don't think we could say that yet. That that he won't play again. I think that if we look at Pepe, particularly under Arteta, but actually in the entirety of his Arsenal um, career. 
there have been these kind of undulations and ups and downs and periods when he plays and periods when he doesn't. Second um, half of a season player. I think I said this before. He, he, yeah. he seems to be better in the second half of a season, whether that's by accident or design, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I do think that the time will come where he will figure a little bit more. Maybe that will be because of injuries, hopefully not. But I do think, you know, with him going away in January, um, I do wonder if we might see, if he might be being slightly phased out, you mm. know, so that so that it causes less disruption when we lose him yeah. for a month or so. Yeah. Um, it does seem that way to me. And as I said in part one, I think that might have played into the decision to field Martinelli. Um by the way, on the subject of the African Cup of Nations, uh, it was brought to my attention this morning that FIFA have now announced when the Club World Cup is going to be. Mm. And it will run over when Arsenal are due to play Chelsea at the start of February. Right. So that fixture will presumably be moved now. So that is one difficult game for which we may now get our African players back. Right. It depends when that game is moved too. I yeah, presume it would have to be moved forward, wouldn't it? You'd like to think so, especially with January being busy with the domestic cups, yeah. etc. Look, the other thing to say is that in in November we've had three games. Um, in December we have eight. Exactly. And, and in January it could be a lot. If we get past Sunderland in the League Cup, yeah, it's, it's another one. So I think... It's too early to absolutely say Pepe is not going to play again. And I'm always reluctant to, to sort of be definitive about situations like this because, you know, there have been plenty of times where you think, well, that's that for this player. And then all of a sudden they come back. I mean, I'm not saying it was exactly the same this time last year, but Pepe didn't play a great deal or certainly didn't play a huge amount in the first half of the season. That's, uh, you know. It was around this time last year, I think, that he was sent off against Leeds and we all ended his Arsenal career. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm I'm not going to say with any um, assurance, well, that's it. This is the end for Nicolas Pepe. I don't think it is. I think when we get into December when we're playing with greater frequency, when we've got a schedule which is going to be very demanding and very taxing physically, and I think there are going to be one or two absences because of injury. We may be going to Old Trafford without Saka. We don't know. So it depends. Um, You know, we'll have to wait and see what he does there. There's loads of football to play in December. And I still think Pepe is a guy who can give you some goals, who can give you assists. Um, I know... He's been inconsistent since he arrived at Arsenal. There have been flashes of great stuff, flashes of not great stuff. But I don't think we can go through the whole of December um, without some changes. And if he gets a chance, if he gets an opportunity and scores a goal or makes a, a valuable contribution, this conversation flips on its head. You know? Yes. And, and, of, and of course, while Martinelli came on and made a fantastic impact the other day, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's a sure thing either at this point in his career. So, you know, having having Pepe as well, I think is going to be valuable. I, I think the bigger question is sort of his longer term future, you know, and does he look like a guy Arsenal are going to be in a hurry to tie down to a new contract as he enters, mm. the, you know, the, that period where the final two years of his deal, are they going to sign or sell? 
I, I think that's a separate conversation, really, about sort of what comes next for him. Is he is he going to be at the club beyond the summer? I mean, mm. generally, in the case of Pepe, I tend to come down on the side of probably yes, just because I sort of struggle to see the market for him at a price that makes it viable for Arsenal. Yeah, but, yeah, that's. It's hard not to think that if we could. We probably would move him on in the summer. But again, like you say, it depends who's out there, who's got the desire, who's got the money for him. I mean, we could have a situation where he goes on one of those loans and then you're 12 months left on his deal, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a scenario we as a, as a club would be looking to avoid as much as possible, right? Because you want something definitive. Kicking the can down the road from a, a transfer perspective is not particularly helpful, but Ultimately, it comes down to who wants him and who will want him and who will be willing to pay for him. So, mm, mm. Um, few questions. I've got two questions here about Kieran Tierney and Nuno Tavares. So, mm. AFC Met on Twitter says, "Do you think we should consider a Tavares as first choice left back now?" I thought this was the perfect game to introduce Tierney after Anfield, but Tavares started and performed very well. Then the other side of the coin, The Land on Discord says, do you think playing Nuno was in part because he pl- Arteta plans to use Kieran Tierney in the two upcoming Northern trips? Home against Newcastle was a good chance for a rebound after a poor performance, and if he didn't get that game, it would have been too long out of the team and might have seemed like punishment. I mean, this is one of those situations where I feel like we kind of have a good problem, you know? Yeah. Whereas last season, if we didn't have Kieran Tierney, we had nobody, or we had Kalasinac, or we had an out-of-position Granite Shack at left-back. Mm. And this season, when we didn't have Kieran Tierney, we had Nuno Tavares. And Nuno's come in and done really well, Um I know he had his moments uh, at Anfield and and was culpable for, in part, for for their second goal. But defensively, I think he's been... I Everything I read about him and everything I'd heard about him beforehand said that, like, going forward in the opposition final third, in the opposition half, that's where he's really strong. And that's where he can make a real difference. So I was expecting... Not expecting, maybe, but I just worried that perhaps defensively he was going to take some time to get up to the level. Mm. And I can't think of a time where he's been run past. He hasn't been skinned by a winger or anything like that. Mm -hmm. He hasn't been out Mm -hmm. of position. He hasn't sort of been ambling back from being high up the pitch. I mean, I think he did look a little bit tired towards the end of the game and I was sort of half expecting again, I was half expecting maybe tyranny for Tavares as the final change, but, you know, he brought on El Nenny. Um, So defensively, he's been really, really impressive. And obviously the tendency now is to think about 
well, what does this mean for Tierney? We had another question on the Discord. Liz's Royal Arsenal So I've heard a lot of people say they think Arteta kept Nuno as a starter to boost his confidence after his mistake in the Liverpool match. But what could that be doing to Kieran Tierney's confidence? There are a few training pictures with Arteta with his hand on his shoulder talking to KT and it looked like it could have been the moment he told him he was on the bench as uh, Tierney looked like he just got bad news. Is Nuno's confidence more important than uh, Kieran Tierney's? So there is a flip side to this, isn't there? That like... Like, you know, we wanted, uh, people wanted Arteta to keep Nuno so you didn't damage his confidence after the difficult day at Anfield. At the same time, you've got a guy who's been pretty much one of our best players for the last couple of years who nobody, you know, two months ago would have thought of anything other than our first choice left back who's now having to sit it out because of the form of this this player. So... I don't know. I I feel like it's a good issue uh, for now, but it can only go on so long as well because, you know, Tierney won't be happy if he's not playing. And Nuno, you know, is getting to a point where he's showing that he wants to play and can play. So it's one of those where it's positive, but at some point it becomes a problem, you know? Yeah. I mean, what do you think he'll do for Old Trafford at that position? I... See, I wonder, will it depend on what happens with Saka? Mm. Like, I wonder, is there scope for Tierney at left back and maybe Tavares as the left side ahead of him, if you're worried about the threat down United's right? Yeah, I, I think I think there is scope for that, and it's a possibility I'd considered. I mean, I think Tierney would have come on probably if Saka hadn't had to go off injured Mm. Um, he spent a long time warming up in the second half and I thought it looked to me like he was in line for for a substitute appearance I I, I think listen and I've given Arteta credit for playing Nuno at the weekend but I don't think this can just be about confidence I think Nuno is a really interesting player Mm. and I think Arteta is really intrigued by what he's got on his hands Something I was thinking about as well that's not been mentioned is that obviously <clears throat> Nuno is a Portuguese speaker and so is Gabriel. And there's been a lot of talk about Gabriel's English improving mm. and that's been part of it. But, you know, when Arteta's thinking about his defence, he's got to think about how coherent that unit is. And, you know, you wonder if maybe he sees something between Gabriel and Nuno on that side that he likes. I just think the positions that he takes up, the ability to go inside and outside makes him a real threat. And I'm sure there are deficiencies in his game, but we're not really seeing them at the present time because Mm. we're sort of leaning into his strengths. Um, And, you know, that position he was in to play in Saka for the first goal at the weekend, that's kind of area where you see Jao Cancelo at Manchester City, you know, coming Mm. inside and influencing the game. And and I think I'm a big fan of Kieran Tierney and I said I would have picked Tierney at Anfield. I probably would have picked Tierney against Newcastle as well. Um, but I have I did say once on here a while ago that I had this slight feeling that Tierney, as much as he's a very good player, that he's sort of a player who belongs in a different team. And I... I guess what I meant by that is that I, I, I don't know if he... If Mikel Arteta designed a fullback, I'm not sure it would be Kieran Tierney. 
And I'm not saying this to cast any aspersions over Tierney's future in the team. I think he's fantastic. But he is quite a straight lines player, if that makes any sense. Mm. He's a guy who gets the byline uh, and crosses the ball in. Does does that not make you think... When we've discussed Arteta and the structure and the rigidness of yeah. the way he wants his team to attack, the five lines, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of, to me anyway, sounds kind of like the archetypal Mikel Arteta player. Whereas Nuno Tavares is like an agent of chaos in a way, in that, you know, he's appearing outside the D in central midfield areas. Look where he is for the Saka goal. Look at what he tries to do with the ball at times, you know, some of the shooting, et cetera, et cetera, where you're thinking, yeah. oh, the manager won't like that because that's not what he wants from his team. He wants them to be more efficient. Like in many ways, Tavares is kind of the anti-Arteta player, but he's showing a real uh, amount of faith in him. And I don't know if that's just us projecting something onto Mikel Arteta that isn't necessarily true or Arteta sort of thinking, okay, well, you know, maybe if you do have something that exists outside of the rigid structures, outside of the training ground drills, et cetera, et cetera, that can be beneficial to the team as well. He's sort of like a, a, I don't know, a left-back Alexis Sanchez in a way, in that he's always trying to do something. Yeah, and he's been a catalyst for this team, for sure. I, I don't know. It's hard to know, isn't it, if, you know, what Arteta's grand plan was for that position. I certainly don't think they bought Nuno Tavares thinking by November he'll be starting and Kieran Tierney will be on the bench. Um, I think that they're seeing things from him that are informing the way that the plan is changing and adapting. And I, I see managers criticised for that a lot. You know, oh, they stumbled onto this, they stumbled onto that. But that is management. You know, you're, you're, you're forced into certain choices and it's how you make those work for you and capitalise on them and recognise when things are going right. I think that is often the cornerstone of success. Mm. Um, I think a lot happens by accident, but it's about, it's about capturing that and maintaining it. And I think Nuno will play at Old Trafford. I think Nuno what, will play. I think he will too. What would you do? Would you change it? I, I don't think I would, simply because of the quality of the uh, the performance he put in against Newcastle. Um, I, I know there's the temptation because United away is a very is a more difficult game. No two ways about it. And yeah. at Anfield, his inexperience was, was evident. So maybe there is an argument that you could play Tierney, who's the more experienced defender. Maybe you lose something, but this isn't this isn't the same as a game, a home game against Newcastle, where I think you can, because of, you know, the circumstances, you're at home, they're not very good. You can afford to be a bit more uh, open is not quite the right word, but you know what I mean? You can have that kind of an approach whereas at Old Trafford despite United having a poor season so far and by the way they've just uh, announced Ralph Ranić um, as the manager so they get their new manager bounce uh, mm -hmm. and he'll have a couple of days maybe to, to work with the players maybe there's an argument that a bit more structure is what's required for a game like that I, I, I think if Saka is fit um the team will be very similar to what faced Newcastle. It wouldn't surprise me if Lacazette came back in. Uh, I just don't know if Martin Odegaard did enough 
to keep his place. Um, but I think new, at left back, Nuno will play with Smith Rowe ahead. I think they've got a good relationship as well, mm. and that's part of what appeals to Arteta. I also think if you look at United. Wambasaka's the right back. Um, I think Rashford's been playing towards the right hand side. I think that's less of a worry in some respects than the left hand side, which could be, you know, Tellez or Shaw and Jaden Sancho, mm. um, who seems to have finally be finding a bit of form at United. So yeah, I, I think he'll I think he'll stick with Nuno, I have to say. And I, I don't think it's I don't think it's you know terminal for Tierney or anything like it. I just think there's something good happening there, and you want to stick with it. And what I would say as well is, we're not the only people who don't didn't know a lot about Tavares coming into this season. Opposition managers, analysts, mm. I think he's caught a lot of people off guard, and I think we should also consider that in our evaluation of him and his performances that. He is uh, benefiting, I think, from being a bit of an unknown quantity and people not necessarily knowing how to handle him or, or you know, uh, mm. deal with him or maybe cause him problems uh, in the way that they counter yeah. or attack him. That's a good point. And that, that's all to come, you know? Yeah, well, look, I have to say, whatever decision Arteta makes on on Thursday for that position, I'm pretty comfortable with it. You know, I think we've got yeah, two same. really, really good options. If it's Nuno, nobody could argue that he hasn't deserved to keep his place. If it's Tierney, you know, you can see why he would make that decision as well because of the the experience, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just and pretty we, comfortable. I, I find it an, a nice position to be in. Yeah, and we play, you know, unusually for us, a few games in, uh, three games in nine days. Mm. United, Everton, Southampton at home. Maybe the same guy's not going to play all three of those, you know, and yeah. that would be fine by me as well. Here's a couple of questions um, from the Discord about Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Oliver Wood GK says, is there any chance that Aubameyang gets benched if he doesn't start producing more consistently? It's been over a month since either a goal or an assist. And Kalen O'Mara says, is it time we dropped Aubameyang? Offered absolutely nothing yesterday, stood around for most of the game and was rightly subbed off. I, I Just before I let you answer that, I do think this, this argument that Aubameyang is somehow just kind of not interested or isn't trying or what have you is is a bit false i think he's working hard but clearly there are aspects to his game which aren't quite right at the moment i mean what is it a fortnight ago something like that that arteta was coming out talking about the, the energy he was transmitting to yeah. the team yeah. how important he was to the press you know i i can't keep up with the speed at which opinions uh vacillate at, at the present time I'm looking back at this run of games in which he hasn't scored. So he scored against Aston Villa. That was probably, you know, one of our best performances of the season. We went to Leicester. Um, I think he did okay that day, 1-2-0. Watford at home. And then the three games since then have been Watford at home and Newcastle at home, who presented similar problems in terms of defending quite deep, being difficult to break down. And then Liverpool away was the other game. And, and I think if you told me those fixtures... I would have hoped for him to score maybe in the home games, but I would be able to say those aren't games that massively suit his strengths. And I think we're, we've we seen that. But I, I'm i not in a hurry to drop him. I, I, have, I have to be honest about that. I think 
I think he'll play, you know, against United. Yeah, um, I do too. Yeah. I think I think he might have Lacazette as well. I'm not sure. What do you think on that one? Mm, I could. I mean, they'll it. share the game, whatever happens. Yeah. Won't they? Be- because, um, you know, I doubt either Lacazette or Odegaard will, will play the full 90. I, I, I do wonder it. what our approach is going to be at Old Trafford. Like, are we going to go and let United have the ball and then, you know, do that thing where we try and hit them? Or are we going to try and, you know, take the game to them a little bit, try and dominate? Because well, the United midfield and the United defence has not been particularly stellar so far this season. No. So I... I, I <sighs> Like a Liverpool-style approach. I mean, we tried to play against Liverpool, but they're obviously a very different beast to to United. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this one. Mm. Uh, Manchester United left Cristiano Ronaldo out against Chelsea. Yeah. Um, subject of much debate between Roy Keane and Jamie Carragher. That was very <laughs> funny, wasn't it? Uh, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank in the middle just very uh, perturbed by what was going on but would you rather that Ronaldo played against Arsenal or that he did not play there is a very difficult question to answer Mm. because I think we can all see that Ronaldo given his age he does have an impact on how any team is going to play. Like, mm. you lack something in terms of, of the way you can play when you have Ronaldo. But the the ability he has to pop up and score goals at any moment in any game is terrifying. <laughs> and he scored, <laughs> he scored so yeah. many goals against us in the past. Even now, when he's not particularly quick, not particularly mobile, he's still a huge, huge threat. Um, So, I think maybe not play for me. Because I I just... Same. I'm too traumatised, I think, by previous encounters with him. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I, I hope he doesn't play. But to come back to Aubameyang, I don't think Aubameyang... You know, Ronaldo does present United with a real problem in terms of his age and his work rate and, you know, how much he's not prepared or not able to do. I don't think Aubameyang's in that category. No, I mean, look, we forget that like he has had a pretty good start to the season in terms of goal scoring. But it's come off the back of a season where he didn't score many goals, uh, you know, as as many as he usually does. And we know there were reasons for that, but there were also some nagging doubts as to, well, you know, could it just be a case that age is catching up with him? Mm-hmm. That's inevitable um, when he goes through a period where he hasn't scored. It's four games without a goal. And now we're thinking, Ooh, is is the cliff there? Is he going off it, et cetera, et cetera. I still think he's our best striker. Um, clearly we have a job to do in the not too distant future to address the striking position mm-hmm. but for me I would I would be playing him at Old Trafford for sure um, yeah, yeah same. much like we were saying about Pepe a goal here or there will will flip the conversation um, it was a bad miss uh, on Saturday against Newcastle it's 
it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he just bounces back straight away and scores an important goal at Old Trafford like he has done in the past. So yeah, scored the winning goal from the penalty spot in this fixture almost a, a year ago. And didn't he score? Didn't he score? When he was offside, what was that? Offside, yeah, yeah. That was was that not during lockdown? I think as well. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that maybe that was in a draw. So yeah, I, I think he'll play. He could do with a goal, certainly. I think we could do with a, a new centre forward, but we'll get that next summer. Um, for the time being, I think he stays in. But but do do I think there will be games where he might drop out and Lacazette will play? Probably, like as the fixture list piles up and yeah. we have to switch things around. And certainly once we get into January um, and he goes away, that's going to happen. So I, I wonder if we might give that a, a game or two before Aubameyang goes away, kind of as we're doing with Martinelli to kind of get into the groove a bit yeah. rather than having to well, find that. Well, here's another question. It comes from Joe, who's at Red and White 11. And he says, is it time to give Martinelli a run at centre-forward with either Odegaard or Lacazette behind him. It would be good to know if he was a serious option there before January. So, look, it's it's very difficult to to drop Aubameyang for Martinelli for a game like Old Trafford. Yeah. Um, like, if, it, if it's not working, maybe you could make that change a little bit quicker. You could change your centre-forward around. But um, what, what do you make of that idea, given that we are going to need to find a solution to... Um, Aubameyang's absence at the end of December in, into January um, I, I'm not sure I buy much into the stories about you know Lacazette could be sold in January etc cetera, etc cetera. I can't really see I don't think so I don't think that no. will happen because of yeah just the complication of it all um, in the current market etc cetera, etc cetera. But, but is that something you would be up for? Yeah, I like the idea of Martinelli as a centre-forward. I mean, he played there uh, against Chelsea right at the start of the season, um, but that was quite exceptional circumstances and a very difficult game for him. I, I think Arteta does see him more as a wide player and he, he has tended to select him as a wide player. Um, but I do like the idea of him playing through the middle. To be honest, I think that... When Aubameyang's not here, I think it will be Lacazette who leads the line and maybe Martinelli will get minutes as a substitute or a replacement. Um, but equally, he could be one of the players kind of buzzing around Lacazette mm. and actually making those runs in behind. You know, I can see a system where you've got Lacazette uh, playing as the kind of connector and then, you know, Saka, Smith-Rowe, Martinelli, people like that moving off him. Uh, that was the quartet that played in the Boxing Day game at Chelsea last season that mm. turned everything around. Um, and, you know, I could foresee something like that happening again. I think if you go with Lacazette centre-forward, you definitely want people who are going to get in behind and, you know, take up dangerous positions beyond him. So that might be more the relationship. I, I like Martinelli through the middle, but I don't think Arteta sees him as that right now. What do you think? No, I don't think he does either, but... It does raise the question as to where the long-term future of Martinelli is. Like if mm. Smith Rowe, I mean, he's currently playing on the left. He may come more central. Saka is currently playing on the right. He may come more central. Um, as time goes on, I think um, we often uh, forget how versatile those two players are. Smith Rowe and Saka, yeah. they're quite fixed at the moment, but they could solve problems in the centre as and when uh, we might need them to. Um, yeah, look, I, I I wouldn't be against it. 
at all. I think he would give you something quite interesting at centre forward. Maybe not quite enough presence, but um, you know, if we're building for the future and at a point where in January Lacazette might be our only striking option, senior striking option. I know we've got Inkedi, we've got Balagoon as well, but I think there are there are side issues with both of those players that that we might see addressed in in January. Having Martinelli as another option would be really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. He's going to be really important. Can I just ask you this one then? Because Neil Howard, yeah. who's at Neil P. Howard, uh, says, given our striker struggles, um, and after James's piece on potential targets in today's athletic, which is a very good read, um, some interesting names there, what, mm-hmm. what do you think about links to uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin? Does he tick the boxes of the athletic analysis? Would he work well in Arteta's system? Please discuss. So is he somebody, so, yeah. is he somebody you put through him. the pizza? We put him through the pizza. We did talk about him. I mean, one of the difficulties with Calvert-Lewin, certainly at the present time, is that he's not played very much football at all this season. Mm. So you, you have to go back and, and look at him over previous years. We did talk about it because I know his name's been floated in the press. Um, I, I like him, but... I, I think he may be, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think he may be sort of slightly too much of a traditional target man. You know, I, I feel like he belongs, <laughs> to follow what I said about Kieran Tierney, I think they they belong in the same team, uh, but I'm just not quite sure if that's Arteta's team. Right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, like, it's interesting. You know, last year we were the team with all the crosses. Yeah. Um, we're really not this year uh, it's because Tavares keeps shooting yeah <laughs> but we are crossing the ball um, dramatically less than we were last season uh, and I think it's generally a good thing I, I like Calvert-Lewin's aerial ability I mean he's very powerful in the air and he, he gives you a lot in that respect uh, but I worry about the injuries yeah and the price will be very high because he's English. I, I wouldn't hate it at all. I, I just, it, he would need to make a step up. Uh, and it, like as with all, all signings, it's an unknown as to whether do, or not they could do it. Do you think in the, the search for a striker that aerial ability is going to be a factor? Because we don't have a great deal of that. And it is... Yeah. You know, I'm not talking about a Peter Crouch or, you know, sticking Chris Samba up top, but it is a decent weapon to have in the team where not quite the right, well, plan B, just lump it up to the big man. But but having that kind of threat isn't something we possess really at the moment. And it is perhaps for a goal shy team, something that we need to think about. I think so. Personally, I think it's, it's actually less the kind of penalty box ability, you know, getting on the end of crosses and set pieces. That would be valuable, don't get me wrong, and we don't have that. But it's more being the outball, you know, being our ability, being someone who can hold it up, who can, you know, we signed a goalkeeper who can kick it 60 yards. Um, it, it would be good if we did mm. that, someone who could consistently keep it. There was one on Saturday where Ramsdale played a, a great ball out to Lacazette, who was sort of just drifting off towards the left. And uh, he just got kind of monstered by a, a Newcastle centre-half who was like a foot taller than him. And you sort of think, well, mm. yeah, I mean, that's going to happen. It, it would be great if, you know, 
those first and second balls, we could compete for them more with someone who was more of a physical presence. And Calvert-Lewin would definitely do that. I mean, there were times last season he looked really uh, excellent. I am, I am, I am still sore about Tammy Abraham. <laughs> I know it might seem uh, ridiculous, and and people who watch Chelsea regularly, like my brother, has said to me, "Listen, he's good. He's not that good, but." He's gone to a, another level at Roma this season in terms of his link-up play, his creativity, his assist. He's got a great goal for them uh, last night, assess, uh, assisted by none other than Henrik Mkhitaryan, uh, you may remember from uh, his glorious period at Arsenal. Mickey. Um, <laughs> Mickey, indeed. But uh, I do think someone in that mould who can kind of do all those jobs would be great. And I also think, you know, Aubameyang's still going to be here next year. So it makes sense to have someone who is complementary to Aubameyang. It, rather than just buying another Aubameyang, I do think we have to think about the immediate future and what kind of balance and chemistry we can have next season from our group of forwards um, before we look at the situation again, another 12 months on when Aubameyang's contract expires. Mm. Um, what do you think about Calvert-Lewin? I like him. I think he's a, a really interesting player and... Like you, I, I worry a bit about the injury now. Um, I mean, he's only 24 still, but he would be very expensive, I guess, coming from another Premier League club. Uh, I like him. I think he's a really good player. Um, but there are other strikers on the market and there are other um, other markets that we can perhaps pursue um, which give us a bit more value for money, you know? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's interesting because... They went they went English, didn't they, with White and Ramsdale um, mm. at significant expense. Uh, I think partly with the view in mind of, you know, these players will provide some longevity and stability and also obviously contribute to the homegrown quota. Um, it wouldn't shock me if they did that again uh, with the forwards. I mean, I, I, one of the players we, who came out quite well th from the stuff we did with the Athletic video and data stuff was Ivan Tony, And I think he is actually a really interesting player because mm. um, he's he's young. I mean, I think he's 20. Let me double check. He's, tw he's 25. So he's a little bit older than Calvert-Lewin. He's 24. But he has just been so prolific through the levels. It's not quite happened for him in the Premier League, but he's really contributing to Brentford's Build up, approach, play, terrorised Arsenal in the air, as you'll remember mm. um, on the opening day. There's a lot of interesting names out there abroad. I think Jonathan David is doing great things in France with Lille. Um, Alexander Isak, I know they really admire at Arsenal, always have. I think he would be very expensive at this point, having renewed his contract uh, last summer off the back of the Euros. Yeah, it's exciting though because. You know, we all love a shiny new striker and I think we can be pretty sure that we're going to get one in the summer. It, it's a big piece, though, and it's important they get it right. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, it is. I feel more confident about it after the summer's recruitment than I would have done before, shall we say. Well, yeah, because you're looking to, you're looking to add something to... Uh, something that's been structured and strategized, you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Like, I, do, I guess there is some merit. I wonder just what kind of age profile they'll go for because 21, 22 is maybe okay if you're buying a left back, but 
are you at your most productive as a striker? But of course, there are some great strikers scoring lots of goals out there who are in around that age as well. I think they. I think they'll be prepared to go a bit higher. When when we were mm. doing the research for the piece, I think I I said let's look up to twenty five. And I think, I think for a centre forward who's going to play and score your goals regularly, you may need to relax on the kind of under twenty three thing. Um, there are some out there. Don't yeah. get me wrong. You know, like I said, Jonathan David's twenty one and he's a top scorer. I think in France ahead of you know Mbappe and Neymar and, and the rest. Mm. Um, so they are out there, but I think there'll be a bit more flexibility about it because, you know, we've rebalanced the age profile of the squad now. We've done a lot of that work. I think when you're making one or two signings a summer, which I think is the aim going forward, you can be a little bit more flexible. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really fascinated to see who it is they're going to bring in because they, they definitely are uh, going to do that and they need to do that, obviously. So um, yeah. plenty of homework being done. One very quick one. Finally, a couple of people asked this. Original Crack Fox, who's at Steve Grange 77, said, is our goalkeeper wearing our away kit far too Sunday league? Why are we the only team that seems to do it? Especially when you see some horrendous kick clashes, Brighton versus Leeds, which uh, struck me when I was watching that one I was going how did that go oh, that was some crazy. crazy ones this weekend yeah, yeah um, and he said especially goalkeepers and referees wearing black and uh, Levi Mark who's at real Levi Mark says good morning gents what's up with our keepers wearing an outfield kit for some games distinction I guess but then why have goalkeeper kits at all if they're not good enough for that purpose are the goalkeeper kit uh, jerseys not selling well and then he says winning team problems smiley face emoji yeah I don't know I mean Aaron Ramsdale's worn a lot of different kits in a short time in the Arsenal goal. It's almost mm. like he's trying to, you know, do the rainbow flag for uh, Rainbow Laces Day at the weekend. I, it's a, an odd one. Um, you know, he's there's only one goalkeeper's kit on sale. It's the green one. Um, but I think he's worn uh, like pink. I think he's worn blue. He's worn yellow. Must be to do with clashes, but I don't remember it ever happening before. What, what, why season. is it you- our? Why is the onus on us? Like if, if for example, like you can't have two goalkeepers wearing green, I guess. Is that, yeah. is that a rule? I've always thought green was a strange kit colour to have. I know it's kind of traditional for a goalkeeper, but um, I'm sure that like, you know, uh, sort of evolutionary theory would say you want to be red. You want to be, you know, you want to be a big, bold, bright colour because it's kind of more intimidating for a striker's eye as they close in on you. I don't know. Um yeah, I mean, it just... No always, idea. Yeah, it used to be always green. That was just the way it was with the goalkeepers. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know why the onus is on us to change. Like, if the goalkeeper on the opposite... Why doesn't the opposition team's goalkeeper wear, I don't know, a fucking luminous pink T-shirt or whatever it is that they've had to fish out of the kit man's bag because there's going to be a kit clash? You know, I, I don't really understand. Maybe we need more variety in our goalkeeping kit, you know? I yeah, don't know. it's it's it's. Uh, I don't. I don't. I, one. Yeah, it does. Does look a little bit half-arsed or something, doesn't it? When you see the goalkeeper coming out, and Bernd Leno did it as well. I think um, maybe last season too. Were there ones last season where he had to wear maybe. like the the away kit in one of the games? I can't quite remember. But I feel like he wore it this season, maybe at Man City or something like that. I don't know. Mm. I don't know, but. Yeah, it is strange. Uh, I'm not entirely clear what's happening. I, I, yeah, like we presume it's clashes, but hmm. I'll see if I can find out. It is an odd one. 
All right. Well, look, uh, we had better leave it there and get this podcast out for people to listen to. Um, as ever, thank you very much for being here. We do have a game in midweek um, Thursday, so we will preview the Manchester United game as always over on Patreon. Myself and Lewis Ambrose will have a Patreon preview podcast for you there. Um, James, enjoy tonight. Hope the meal is good, the company is good, and, and you can uh, bring home a trophy. Yes, that would be fantastic. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed. And fingers thanks crossed. for everyone who, who voted for us anyway. It, Indeed, yes. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll leave it there as ever. Thank you for being here, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Mickey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.